Namaste, friends and listeners. I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This afternoon, the trail less traveled is being recorded all over northwestern Montana. We're starting the interview in a beautiful garden here in Missoula, and I'm not going to talk much this show because I'm stepping back as a producer. A project I've been working on is asking past guests to think about people in their life that they would like to sit down and interview to facilitate those conversations and step back as a producer. I am here with Jake, who is the owner of Lake Missoula Tea Company, and I've spoken with him and his wife Heather about traveling around the world gathering tea. The last time we connected, he mentioned Larry Evans, a mycologist and Missoulian. So we're here in Larry's garden, and I'm going to hand it over now to Jake for an interview with his friend. Thank you, Mandela. Well, it's great to, to be, be yeah, yeah, it's hi. it's great to be here, Larry, in your in your little permaculture garden. Yeah. And We've known each other a long time, back to probably the late 80s and early 90s. Early 90s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Had a chance to live together for a while, but we have certainly done a lot of environmental campaigning, both here in our own backyard, but also focused on, you know, some of our world's more threatened ecosystems. Um, You know, certainly you've done a lot of work in Bolivia and in the Amazon, but also traveled all over North America extensively foraging and looking for mushrooms in Russia and in Russia. Why don't you start to just give us a little sense of what got you interested in mushrooms? What was the attraction? I grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Illinois, which was just kind of a little bit of an anomaly to start with. All the other farmer kids had soybeans and corn and we had pine trees and Underneath the pine trees came up the swillus mushrooms that are like mycorrhizal with the the trees. And that was the first mushroom I ever identified when I was maybe 12 or 13. Pulled out my, you know, I said, well, what are these? And my mom says, well, there's a book. Go get her done, you know. And <laughs> Go find it, out. It, uh, it, it was, you know, it was pretty straightforward identification. I mean, you know, something was with, within my skill set at the time to uh, be able to key it out. Turns up it's edible. Turns up it's been uh, used historically in cultures from the ancient Romans all the way up through the modern Slavic cultures, you know. That was a keystone species for me. And did it lead then to further interest in school, you know, as far as your education? and Mostly, I, you know, I didn't have any opportunities to deal with fungi like most people in my generation. Biology book, your botany book, had maybe in a 2,000-page book you maybe had 10, 20 pages at the end, you know, that dealt with fungi. 
and it was all just very general. It was in there with the mosses and the ferns and trivial shit, you know? Yeah. Threw we in, don't give it much thought. Yeah, yeah they threw in reindeer like and just to be, you know, cosmopolitan and stuff. But no, it was it was pretty bad. And I studied botany. I got a degree in botany from the University of Montana in 79, a co-major with uh, microbiology. I also was uh, growing bugs at the time, had all kinds of uh, bacterial and uh, fungal uh, interests growing, so to speak. Yeah, then I realized, of course, that this was, at that time in space, that was no way to get employed because nobody knew what a mycologist was, much less what the study of fungi had to do with anything at all. So you certainly didn't think that you were going to have a professional career or some kind of economic livelihood I didn't. based around mushrooms. Not only that, I, I didn't. I went right back and got a, a subsequent degree in education and then went to Japan and taught English for two years and made enough money, you know, to do other things, you know. And then I went to Korea and earned and spent money in Korea. At that time, the Asian economies were really boom economies and the skill sets that, you know, this American type person had, I was able to monetize on those pretty heavily for a couple of years there. And then I uh, took off with my lady friend and we traveled for two years through Asia and ended up, oh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand. The whole gamut. Yeah, Asia, you know, greater Asia. And I also spent two different seasons in China going through the northern and western parts of the country, mostly. And then did you have direct experiences with mushrooms on any of those oh, yeah. travels? Absolutely. In fact, one of the really interesting things was back in Tibet, when I was there in 85, I went to a market and was offered cordyceps sinensis, orphiocordyceps sinensis. Now, the caterpillar fungus... And the Tibetan people call it Yartsugumbu, which means winter worm, summer grass. And the Chinese use the same idea, and in Chinese it's called Dongchengxiakao. And that is the name for this medicine. It's the most it's a expensive. Medicine. It's not food so it's much. It's the most expensive medicine in the world. $30,000 a pound, I'll have you know. Yeah. Wow. A dose is. It's really something. It's not something they just talk about, right? It's some serious stuff. It enjoys a worldwide reputation, and efforts to duplicate this have so far been pretty futile. Now, I know that when Heather and I were in China, we had the chance to see a lot of mushroom collection when we were in Yunnan. Yeah, yeah. You know, Yunnan so is big. Southwestern China, mm-hmm. and literally selling it on the road and having brought it right down from the forest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was quite common for us to see other fruit too, oh, yeah. a lot of fruit there but definitely there was fungus oh yeah 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 i would say in most cultures where i've lived and worked around the world mushroom cultivation even i would say mushroom collection going out in the woods and harvesting is really an integral part of every single culture in the world we are a rare exception in this country i don't know any other indigenous culture that doesn't have a long-standing relationship with fungi. The fact that we obliterated the local indigenous people before we could even absorb from them the knowledge. their knowledge, which they had quite deep knowledge of fungi, but only traces remain. And I've been speaking with people about this. So. After leaving Japan and cruising through Asia for a couple of years 
and then ended up going through Australia. Came back to the States, did a little import and export between Missoula and down Mexico way, bringing up lots of fabrics and originally started off bringing up silver from Tasco for jewelry, that kind of stuff. In the early 90s, we did the dead shows, went around to the dead shows and sold friendship bracelets that we brought up from Guatemala. We used to buy thousands from the mujeres protestantes, the women who were escaping domestic abuse and living outside the Protestant church because the Catholic church wouldn't let them. We went and bought bundles of those things and brought them to dead shows and, you know. Made bank. Yeah, it, well, it was a made living. Yes, I don't I can't, I hardly make bank <laughs> living in your van, but it was okay. But you, you know? could make money off deadheads. If you could make money off deadheads, man, you, you must have a good <laughs> angle, right? You know? <laughs> no kidding, dude. I tell you what. Uh, just but, like Missoulians, they're all uh, no baggers. Uh, so. Yeah, we all figured it out. That's about the time I ran into you, mm-hmm. you know, living at Wayne's World and starting with Cove Mallard stuff, planting the volunteer trees along the railroad tracks before the trail went in, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So this is just a little context for our listeners. Uh, by the way, you're listening to The Trail Less Traveled here on the trail, 103.3, here in Missoula, just over here on South 4th Street, this used to be the office for the Alliance for the Wild Rockies. And back in the 90s, the Alliance was a major force to be reckoned with in terms of the conservation community. And we all kind of lived in a warehouse. Of, in a warehouse that our friend Wayne, who's passed away, you know, let's Had, have one for Wayne Pritchard, you know, yeah. definitely a, a long time making the teepees. Uh, community activist who was making his, his, his life lodges, his one pole teepees. Uh, one pole. But, Wayne. anyways, Wayne had this building which the Alliance was renting from, and the many of us lived down in the basement. But it was a real activist center. And again, a lot of us, you know, were learning hands-on kind of stuff. Like I said, we were doing some basic restoration, you know, even just urban restoration around the building. And Napweed was a huge problem at the time, and we were able to cut and compost napweed and eliminate huge swaths of it in neighborhoods without any herbicide, this kind of stuff. At the same time, around that time, I worked with Jake and the Velcro sheep and other people doing the Sheep on the Steep project, which put uh, sheep up on Mount Sentinel and then later Mount Jumbo yeah, to prove the viability of using sheep as control for leafy spurge because at the time they were being strongly lobbied to spend five or six figures on helicopter spraying and there was strong community resistance to this. It was going to use picolorum, which is, we won't go into the chemistry of it, but it's not your friend. It would have been applied over large areas of the watershed Find our way back into the groundwater and, you know. It was a bad thing. It was a bad thing. And we proved, uh, both in concept and in practice, that sheep could be taken out and used to graze uh, leafy spurge in an effective and and biodynamic fashion and not at a big ecological cost for poisoning the watershed or something like that. So... It's biocontrols. And John Stoltz, a local rancher, took a band and a half up there and did that for, what, eight years, seven Several years, they had a sheep roundup and drove 1,500 band and a half of sheep up on Mount Jumbo and grazed that back to the point where the leafy spurge is really... It's not as bad as a no. It's not nearly yeah, as bad as it, it was it, in the it's, 90s. It's not dominating... It's still there. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not dominating ecology yeah, yeah. As, like it was. Yeah. That was a neat project. 
So in terms of, as I said, your transition to really making mushrooms more a part of your livelihood and an advocacy point for non-timber forest products and, you know, other things that were starting to hopefully give the public a sense that it wasn't just all about the timber. Right, right. Well, I think that like a lot of Missoulians, Jake, I did a lot of, uh, what would you say, uh, multiple income streams in order to make the seasonal bridges around here. Yep. And I figured out mushrooms back in the 80s. You know, that brought us to this situation where I've, I've been growing mushrooms. I got 14 different kinds of edible species that I'm growing just in my backyard. Which is where we're standing, by the way. Yeah, and we're standing in my garden right now where, you know, mushroom compost has played a real vital role in growing the squash and the corn and the beans and the lettuce and the sunflowers and the fever few. The fever few is really good because deer hate it. They sniff that and they ignore the, the I think place. that we have that in a couple of our tea blends. Yeah, fever few, be careful. It's, it's powerful it's medicine. It's strong, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's You can smell it. It's, it'll, it'll make you... Is it like kind of an aspirin? It's one of the blossoms. It's a, considered an aromatherapy because that sharp smell that it gives, yeah, yeah. it's medicinal type of uh, thing, and the deer do not like that. They don't like onions either, so I put a lot of onions lot of around. Onions. All my so my garden help to repel the right. You see how well the my ungulates here in Missoula, which are yeah. fierce, rampant, rampant, yeah. <laughs> rampant. <laughs> But, you know, here we go. Look, see, this is why I plant the way that I do. I've got mustard over there. Yeah. I've got mustard around the brassicas so that you've got to get through the gnarly mustard to get to the tasty brassicas. I've got peppers over here because you can't really tell where they are and they're grown together with the tomatoes. And I've put wire in with the tomatoes so it's really difficult to walk in there. You know, and so... The Jerusalem artichokes in the back, I see. Sunchokes, yeah. yeah, yeah sunchokes yeah. are in the back. And every uh, year I bring... 50, 100 pounds of sunchokes down to the Well, this is one of the most amazing urban gardens that I have seen. And when I worked in Australia at the Rainforest Information Center, we also had a permaculture garden. Yeah. So it reminds me very much of being in the far north coast of New South Wales. We got three seasons going on here. That's the idea. I try and do a spring, a summer, and a fall garden. Okay. So I've got in between all this, the bare spaces you see, those are radishes planted. That's radishes coming up and arugula coming up, wasabi coming up, that kind of stuff. Those will all come up. The squash are growing on top of the remains of the chives, you know, and the chives are a good place to hide a squash, just like the thistle right behind you here. The thistle See? here. Look, here's a thistle, and look, right down the bottom, uh, hiding, squash. hiding a little squash <laughs> there, you know? The squash go and do that kind of stuff, so... Well, this has been great, Larry, and we really appreciate your insight. We're going to get back with you here in a little while, but I'm glad we got a chance to do our first segment out here in the garden. Yeah. Where are we heading next, Jake? We're going to be looking and foraging for some mushrooms that, uh, you know, Larry has some ideas about where he thinks we might be able to find some. But yeah, we're going to head up into the National Forest Land. Here we go. And do you have a song that you are particularly uh, inspired by or or drawn to? We talked to the cordyceps. We talked about cordyceps this time, so we should definitely do the caterpillar fungus. Sung by Andrea Harcel here on the Fungal Boogeyman CD. Cordyceps and insects living in the ground. Mosey on around 
We are back, and we are now in a beautiful 
Spruce First Forest. And we would describe it, Larry, as a potential indicator site and one that has mushrooms. I have places that I have dropped pins on my mind. Yep. And I go back to these same places year after year, every season, so that I can tell where we are. I can tell, Uh is the season advanced? Is it retarded this year? What kind of state are we in? And I usually take a place that's not too far off the road, some place that has some residual unmanaged forest, right? And a lot of people won't recognize unmanaged forest, you know? Mm -hmm. Those of us who've been out in the woods a bit, we immediately recognize whether we're on a plantation or in a mixed-age stand or in old growth or something like that. But it's difficult to simply just go out in the forest and recognize where you're at. Yeah. The area we're in has been managed, but this particular place right now has a bit of an unmanaged feel to it. It's in the late stage. It's a little patch, I think, of natural forests, we would say. Late stage successional, as we would say. Okay. We got spruce, we got fir, we got... uh, Grand fir. Grand fir. Yep. You know, here we have uh, Labrador tea. Lots of Labrador tea here in good shape. Well, there's lodgepole here. Certainly there's quite a bit of lodgepole pine. Oh, yeah. We have lots of different trees within a quarter mile of here. We could probably find just about every kind of tree in the Pacific Northwest. Right. Now, we're up here in early August, so what does that mean in terms of the type of mushrooms that we might find? You notice that especially when it has been so dry and so hot that... We are now in one of the few places where you can actually feel the moisture, okay? And the reason for this is because, like a lot of places, we're living on fossil water here. It's all the organic matter that is piled up here since the last ice age is a source of both water and nutrients for the Mm -hmm. fungi. Mm -hmm. You know, the water that is present now is coming from brown cuboidal rot that we're standing on. And this brown cuboidal rot is the decomposed wood with the cellulose taken out of the wood. And only the lignin remains as this brown cuboidal rot. And this stuff holds three to five times its weight in water, okay? This is the only reason that forests can survive with the amount of annual rainfall that we get. We do not have enough annual rainfall in western Montana to sustain the forests we have. The only reason that that happens is because we have a residual supply of soil carbon in the form of brown cuboidal rot that both holds moisture and, as the fungi break it down, releases moisture. So that is part of the role of the fungi. Right. Wood, when the tree falls in the forest, that wood, by weight, is almost 60% water. You know, it's tied up chemically with carbon, but that log is going to break down to CO2 and water in roughly 40-60 ratios, and the fungi are the vehicle by which that happens. Okay, let's take a step back. Where do mushrooms fit in the taxonomic kingdom? They have their own kingdom. We like to drop the G. We call it the kingdom. Kingdom. I th- kingdom. Kin, kingdom. Kin, I think we like, I like thinking of a plant, animal, and fungal kingdom because I don't really see the need to put that reference to royalty. The exaltation. The, yeah. the <laughs> exaltation of aristocracy into the whole thing, really. Okay. Uh, because it is a kin, not a king relationship, but a kin relationship. And fungi, especially 
are very lateral in their means of growth, all right? This is because of all things, fungi kind of live in the moment. And two things. First, fungi live forever, right? They die constantly, but they have no technical limits. They have no technical limits to their... Are they uh, opportunivores? Well, we all opportunivores. <laughs> we all opportunivores. Yeah, yeah. So the key thing to remember about fungi is that they are the network, that the transformative system that is kind of laterally transferring nutrients and even information as well as water in the forest. The tree gets 80% of its water and 100% of its mineral nutrients from the fungus. Okay, that water is coming from that BCR, from that decomposed wood, it acts as a sponge, and the fungus literally pulls that water out of there and pumps it into the tree, sells it basically to the tree for sugar. So these trees that we're standing under, they could not exist without the mushrooms. No no question about it, yeah. It's it's been that way for longer than monkeys have been walking on their back legs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so... Well, obviously an integral function, you know, in terms of the natural, not only, you know, sort of the natural plants and animals, but what else is it about mushrooms that sort of binds the world together? You know, what is it that makes mushrooms unique compared to other life forms? Well, okay, let's distinguish mushrooms and fungi real quick. Mushrooms are the fruiting body or the reproductive organ of a small percentage of fungi. Fungi are what you're talking about that has hyphae or mycelia that grow for miles under the ground. Um, We can't see it. Well, you can if you pick up. Here's Here I am. Here's forest soil. I'm picking it up. You can see the white stuff right there. You know, you can see those little... That's the mycorrhizae. That that is the mycorrhizae. That is the fungus right there. And that constitutes 51% of the protoplasm in the ecosystem. It's more than half, more than half of the weight of living material in this ecosystem is fungus. And what can you say? That that is, is kind of a, a building necessary, block? It's a limiting factor. Yep, yep, yep. Because the fungi are the gatekeepers, if you will, of the mineral nutrients that go to the tree. Like I said, 80% of the water, 100% of the mineral nutrients that the tree obtains comes from a fungus. The way the tree gets those mineral nutrients from the fungus is complicated system of communications. They are swapping information back and forth. The mycorrhizae is a relationship where fungus sends interference to the tree's cells the tree's cells respond with interference to that thing. And that back and forth happens 125,000 times in a mycorrhizal relationship just to form the mycorrhizae. So you're talking about a weaving together of these two organisms that is not the result of a casual encounter, that it's a result of living together for 400 million years. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been sharing that cell for a while. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that longevity is obviously what allows a lot of our ecosystems to have resilience. To, you know, that's what's creating right. the resilience that we're obviously needing now right. during an era of climate change. Dead on. And we haven't 
article from the Smithsonian a couple of years ago, 2014, I think, when they mentioned that over half of the biomass, you know, that's in an ecosystem is represented in fungi. The same statistic I used earlier, you know, it's the limiting factor in nutrient supply. The ratio of carbon to nitrogen in a fungus is 700 times that of a plant. The nitrogen is 700 times more concentrated in the fungus. The fungus provides the equivalent of 1,300 pounds per nitrogen per acre in a forest ecosystem. Like, that's a lot of, that's a lot of spreading fertilizer around, you know? Mm-hmm. And we have acknowledged that as an ecosystem function, but again, the word fungi doesn't even exist in our forest management plans, yep. right? So this is a, a glaring example well, of hoping, ignorance I'm in planning. I'm hoping that we can get into that in more detail on our next uh, segment or in our next away. interview. It won't but go away. <laughs> to summarize, the forest that we are standing under would not exist without all of the fungi. To say it again, yes, absolutely, yeah. And yep. the on top of that, another acute fact, every tree that you have in this forest, and I'm talking every individual tree, not every species of tree, every individual tree has at least 10 fungi attached to it, okay? The, the, the separate species, you're talking about... Se- ten, 10 separate species of fungi at okay. least on every single in, individual tree in the forest, right? Yeah, and, and that in its range, over the range of the Douglas fir, it forms mycorrhizae. It forms that complicated mycorrhizal relationship I explained to you earlier. It forms that relationship with 2,000 different fungi from where it grows in New Mexico to where it grows in Canada, you know. The that, spectrum of its range. It, it, it yep. makes 2,000 mycorrhizal connections, 2,000 different kinds of fungi. It's incredible. Grow on the roots of this single, tr- single species of tree. The yeah. pseudo-pseudo-menzizi. Mm-hmm. Yep, That's a, that, is, the that is the Douglas fir. Is, that is, is the Douglas one, fir. Of the key, one of the key cornerstones, yeah. Now, am I overstating it to say that there are still thousands of forms of mushrooms that we have yet to discover um more like millions but more like millions. yeah our notions of species don't really work that well when you get to fungus we really are one of the big debates that i've had uh with some of my associates is uh the notion of whether we are sampling a population mm-hmm or an individual. Our notions of individuality have absolutely no basis in the, in the context of fungi. When you're talking about fungus, you're talking about something that doesn't have an outer limit. It doesn't have an end of life to look forward to. It's, it, it, it interacts with its environment in in all in a unidirectional like a cons- fashion on a constant level, right? Yeah, it's pretty much the again. It's it's the limiting factor for a lot of your plant and mineral transfer. Mm-hmm. So, this ecosystem is a, is a really good example of. We talk about Douglas fir being a cornerstone species and forming relationships with lots and lots of different mushrooms. Now let's look at a mushroom like. Rush Labrevipes, the duff humper, our good old duff humper that grows here 
all over Western Montana. And that is a keystone mushroom species in our especially mature old growth type ecosystems because, and we go, well, how do you know that it's a keystone species? Well, how do you know it's a keystone species if it's a tree? Uh, forms relationships with 2,000 other species, you know? It's the baddest dude in the neighborhood because it's got the biggest gang, yep. right? And that's how we know that Rush Labrevipes has been around a long time. In fact, it's been around longer than Nuggasur because it's got more connections and more relationships and more old networking connections, historical, I should say, mm-hmm. historical network connections that cross all the different kingdoms, plantae, lichen, algae, this demonstrates flowering that, plants right yeah. and having a relationship with a conifer having a relationship with a heterotroph like an ericaceous plant like uh, the earth spore things like that mm-hmm. having a relationship with alga being parasitized by a completely different kingdom of fungi I'm using different characteristics. There, but again, but, you're yeah. saying that there is so much interconnectedness, you know. Right. Is, that's yeah. And to determine the importance of a species, you look at the number of connections that it has. And we have a couple of species here that basically define our ecosystem. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled at 103.3 FM, and I'm here with Mandela and our mushroom man, Mr. Larry Evans. I am Jake Krylik, and really, really pleased that uh, we've been able to do this interview and certainly encourage other folks that have been on Mandela's show to think about other folks who might be good candidates for The Trail Less Traveled. Larry, I am holding in my hand here a just beautiful specimen of a chanterelle. And oh, would yeah. you describe to our listeners kind of what this mushroom looks like? Oh, baby, can't you tell? <laughs> I am a chanterelle. I got the rink, rink, wrinkly gills. So the gills are not uh, real gills. They're just kind of little wrinkles, you know? Yeah. A button mushroom I'm not. I smell like apricot. It does, actually. Give it a, give it a sniff there. What do you think? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've been picking some, apricots from my backyard, so I've got that in my... Don't smell your fingers. <laughs> yeah, smell your fingers. Yeah. And just to finish this segment, Larry, what song would you like to play that would amplify... Uh, oh, yeah. We got to do Everything Has a Fungus because that's what it is. Everything has got a fungus. So it eats it when it's gone. So it's... <laughs> It's a good song to finish on. Right on. And Larry, you sing this song? Yeah, that's on the Fungal Boogie Man. Everything has a fungus That eats it when it's gone Sucking out those nutrients So life can carry on Every tree has a fungus That inhabits its roots Spores that travel with the seeds And catch the sprouting shoots Hey, everyone has a fungus, and everyone should know what the fungus is doing to your barley or your toes. Hey, when the whole nine you eat your fungus once or twice a day, someday that fungus is gonna eat you, cause that is nature's way.
or something else you like a lot. Hey, everyone has a fungus, and everyone should know what the mushrooms do to your barley or your toes. Everything has a fungus that eats it when it's gone, sucking out the nutrients so life can carry on. Hey, whether or not you eat your fungus once or twice a day. This afternoon, the Trailless Travel is being recorded in the forest in the Northwest. And uh, yeah, that's pretty vague, isn't it? But the truth is we are foraging for mushrooms. And just like the fishing hole, it's not information that, you know, we want to spread the locality. You must protect your sites. Protect it, protect it, you know. And we do encourage you to listen and learn and then get engaged and go out into the forest and connect. And one way you can connect with nature is connecting with the food whether it's hunting or foraging for mushrooms. My name's Mandela. I'm going to go ahead and hand it back to the host of the show this evening, Jake Krylik. He is my friend and the owner of the Lake Missoula Tea Company. He is interviewing his friend and our local mycologist, Larry Evans. All right. Welcome back, Larry. And it looks like you have found... We got some chanterelles, baby. Boy, those look beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Can you describe those to our listeners? Uh, They look like... uh golden colored and they are like gigantic golf tees with uh varicose veins Uh, (laughs) and they're all yellow whatever it is they're all yellow and are they viewed as a delicacy in terms of kind of the edibles i guess uh, i guess guess you can eat them yeah yeah. (laughs) it probably won't kill you right away yeah. <laughs> we recommend cooking them, yes. Yes, yes, definitely cook them. Yeah, yeah. But normally chanterelles are harvested at what time of year? In the fall here, although we probably have upwards of 30 species of chanterelles in North America. Different species. Different species, oh yeah. So same family, just different genuses. The same genus, same chanterellus. Gen- okay. And, and then there might actually be another genus or two beyond that. But there's like... Five different species in the East Coast, three in the Midwest that I can pull out of my hat right away. Uh, we got three different species between here and the coast, and we've got a couple more further south. So, so regional regional deviations? There's a lot of different fungi that only live in certain regional areas. And this gets us back to the whole notion of are we dealing with an individual, or are we dealing with population? Are these populations of chanterelles, or is this just one really old dude who's still just, hanging just in there? Multiplied. You know, just kind of, well, it got a little dispersed. Yep. You know, just yep. one really old dude who got really dispersed. And this is, how do mushrooms work? You know, that's what people always want to know. And, and they want to know, can you eat it? You know, and can I get high from it? So and those are, between it? those three questions, that's probably 80% of my college. You answer those three, people say, oh, yeah, he knows mushroom. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is no question, Larry, <laughs> that Americans, but I would say also people from all over the world, are more and more fascinated by mushrooms. They want to learn more about mushrooms. 
because I think, yes, they're intrigued about using them, you know, whether they're ingesting them or whether they're, yeah, or whether they're eating them. They're getting woke to mushrooms, man. They're getting woke to mushrooms. And I think the part of the problem is that, you know, when you look at our nutritional lifestyle, we don't have a lot of protein and fiber. These are two things that we're really lacking. If people are trying to live sustainably and not, you know, like survivalist type stuff, you cannot live above the 45th parallel without a vitamin D supplement. You've either got to eat something that's got a lot of vitamin D in it or you're going to get sick. And that's where you get a lot of vitamin C. Vitamin D and vitamin C both are in mushrooms. And in fact, if you take even a dried mushroom and put it in the sun, the UV from the sun will increase the amount of vitamin D in the mushroom by 40 times, four zero, 40 times. Activates it. It charges it and turns it into vitamin D. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's incredible. Mushrooms nutritionally are something that we have really overlooked. Uh, it's been a kind of a phobic thing in our culture. Uh, Would you I, describe it as a superfood? Well, I think that, I think mm-hmm. superfood is an overused term. That's but overused. Yeah. How would I describe the role of mushrooms in nutrition? Okay, very high in minerals, high in fiber, and high in exotic light fatty acids. Okay, like omegas are slightly heavier, but these are... Mushrooms have a lot of exotic oils, uh, sterols, and things that we use in our metabolism and in our system. And if you don't have those, you build them, you make them, and it's metabolically expensive. And so... This can allow you takes to get energy, a takes lot time of, and energy. Yep. Yeah, you can get a lot of really interesting metabolic chemicals from fungi that we're only now appreciating the value of. When you look at vitamins, for example, we figured out the basic idea of vitamins back in the 1950s, right? Because they have a low molecular weight. We can put them on a graph and figure them out pretty quickly. The stuff that's coming out of fungi is much more complicated, whereas a vitamin has a molecular weight in the hundreds. The compounds that we're looking at in mushrooms have molecular weights in the hundreds of thousands, okay? And so we can't understand the complexity of these uh, beta-glucan sugars and these various types of mineral-based compounds through our normal chemical analysis, okay? It gets deeper than that, yes. Yeah, it's much deeper than just looking at calories or, like you said, just looking at, you know, sort of what's in them. Right. Well, sorry, we got to come up for air here. I know we got kind of did a deep dive on the whole science shit there. Yeah. But basically, nutritionally, mushrooms are an essential part of nutrient cycling. Uh, Again, we're looking at that, whether it's in a human system or an ecosystem or anything. It's, It's a very... Important. Well, I know factor. from the standpoint of our tea company, we now have a mushroom tea, which is in a powder form. Oh, yeah. Hugely popular. And uh, again, people are drinking it both, I think, because they like how it tastes because it has kind of a coffee texture to it. Mm-hmm. But it's an energy booster. We call it the Mushies Instant Cup. And I said you buy it in a tin or in a bulk bag. You know, you can drink it straight or you can make it as a fog. So put a little bit of milk or non-dairy and a little honey in it. Mm-hmm. And it's delicious. By the way, you are listening to The Trail Less Traveled, and here with Mandela and Larry Evans. Larry, we've been talking about some of the nutritional benefits and values of mushrooms. What about the toxicity and the poisons that fungi can have? Mushroom poisoning is something that 
is very much on everybody's mind. I think it's really important, just from a real basic standpoint, to understand that there are a lot of different mushrooms, and there are a lot of different mushroom toxins, right? The Amanita mushroom, the red and white spotted mushroom that has toxins, that's one sort. The psilocybin, that's considered another sort. We have the relatives of the shaggy mane, the inky cap, that will make alcohol toxic for you if you consume it with alcohol. That's another sort. We also have a couple of deadly types of poisons. One of them that grows in like canosabe, that grows in lawns quite commonly, that can be lethal in small amounts. And then we have other stuff like the gastrointestinal stuff that causes gastrointestinal upset. So, Like what recently happened with the Dave Sushi in Bozeman? Right. We can't comment on a legal situation, but it's very important to remember that many mushroom so-called toxins are removed by cooking and or parboiling. So if you're experimenting with mushrooms that you haven't eaten before, dropping them in boiling water before you continue the cooking process is not a a bad idea. Well, again, we're talking very general. I'm talking all mushrooms. I'm used to dealing with very specific mushrooms, and there's over 5,000 of them. But in general, yes, you do want to cook. There's no mushrooms that I would suggest eating without cooking, except truffles. Truffles would be an exception. Truffles. People need to be safe, and obviously they need to think before they eat. Sure. Really, there are very few poisons. Virtually every mushroom out there depends on a vector, on something to eat it and transport it around. It doesn't travel. A mushroom travels in terms of microns, right? Millimeters is a lifetime for a mushroom. But, boy, it makes a fruit, it can go miles. Boom. You know, something eats it, something hits the wind, whatever. That's how fungi survive. You know, that's why you still see the same fungus growing a million years later. It's not in the same place it started. You know, ran out of food there a while ago. So, and I think the other thing to remember is fungi, they're a living organism. They feed. They don't just grow. They feed. Well, Larry, this has been wonderful. And I think we'd very much like to get back together and have another interview, if possible, If you would be so kind to give us your three bits of advice for our listeners in terms of things that you kind of put front and center. Okay. First, I'd say know what it is before you eat it. Okay. Two, you can taste any mushroom and spit it out. Won't hurt you a bit. And third and most important, Stay out of my patches. Stay out of my patches. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. And for this uh, ending of Larry's interview, I want to thank him and certainly thank Mandela for letting me be his interviewer. And please tune in to The Trail Less Traveled on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. on 103.3 The Trail. And we certainly are looking forward to part two of Larry's interview when we get back together with him. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how mushrooms are part of our economic fabric, how they are ingrained in cultures around the world, and also, of course, how we need to be putting mushrooms more in terms of forest land use and resource planning, basically efforts to get our federal and state agencies to take mushrooms more seriously. 
What song would be appropriate to end this segment with? Oh, baby, can't you tell? I am a chanterelle. Yeah. <laughs> lovely, <laughs> lovely. And it was so awesome that we actually got to find some chanterelles out here in the forest today. And, you know, despite the summer heat, we're up here in a relatively lush, cool forest. And, you know, we're not that far from Missoula. So that's a good thing. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. This has been episode 564. I would like to thank my friend Jake Krylik, one of the owners of Lake Missoula Tea Company. This evening, Jake interviewed his friend Larry Evans with the Western Montana Mycological Association. This interview was part of a series that I've been working on for many years now. So if you have somebody in mind that you would like to interview, please visit traillesstraveled.net and get in touch with me. I would love to help you produce a show. When I'm leading expeditions around the world, I always like to share with my team that I am all about shared vision. And that's partly why I've been inviting folks to interview each other 
and become part of the trail that's traveled. It's all about community, adventure, conservation, inspiration, and information. Please do visit traillesstraveled.net, check out the full show archive, learn about our outreach programs, and get in touch with me. As Missoulians, I think it's important for us to continue to support local businesses. There is another opportunity for you to support a school that recently opened, and I'm incredibly excited for the Missoula community to have access to the Montana Folk School. The Montana Folk School offers adult educational opportunities centered on the innate connection to the planet from which all human lineages have emerged. Visit montanafolkschool.org to see all the opportunities that they have, including basket weaving, hide tanning, friction fire, beekeeping basics, wool felting, the art of arnica solve, fire pit pottery, and wildlife tracking. Now I'm going to hand it over to one of the founders of the Montana Folk School, my friend Carrie. Here's Carrie from the Montana Folk School with a nature nugget. Hello, this is Carrie from Montana Folk School, where we offer classes for adults and families in wilderness living skills, folk arts, and nature connection. We're based in the beautiful Missoula Valley. For today's nature connection nugget, I wanted to chat a minute about sit spots. A sit spot is more of a practice than an actual place and can happen anywhere you are at any time. I often teach young people that no matter where you look in the animal kingdom, across all species, they will often spend an immense amount of time sitting still somewhere in nature, observing, taking in what's going on, maybe relaxing, maybe discovering something new, watching each other, watching other species listening and deepening their own connection with where they live. I can't say that there isn't a sit spot that I've ever done where I've walked away from it saying, gosh, I wish I hadn't just taken that moment. It's always a profoundly rewarding experience, even if I'm just relaxing and often a magical one. This nature connection practice more than any other continues to teach me how much I am a part of the natural world rather than apart from it. And although humans may be one of the few animal species that really doesn't take immense amounts of time to sit in nature alone, observing, listening, living, being, in our modern lives we can still find time to connect. And I find it essential and necessary. I love what Mandela says, how conservation is not a spectator sport. And I would say, you know, nature connection is not a thing, it's a practice. And it's a part of building those foundations of conservation in, in ourselves as adults and humans and in, and in future generations. So I invite you to go take a sit spot somewhere in the woods, in your backyard, anywhere. Take a moment and the open-mindedness to just sit and listen and watch and experience. This is Carrie from Montana Folk School. If you're interested in taking some classes in wilderness living skills, natural arts, or nature connection practices, 
you can visit us online at www.montanafolkschool.org. We have lots of classes, seasonally based, and we bring in some great instructors from all over the Northwest. Thank you, Mandela, and the trail less traveled. We sure do appreciate you all. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please, remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Montana is an incredible place to live, but with privilege comes responsibility. Speak up and use your voice on behalf of wildlife and wild places.